Corinne Ruff, and this is Conversational Commerce, the podcast where we break down the biggest industry news and trends by talking shop with the retail dive team, thought leaders, and executives. This time on the show, I'm bringing you the lowdown on the who, what, when, where, and why of Shop Talk. That's the retail show that happens every year out in Las Vegas. So whether you were there or not, in this episode, you'll get all the retail dive highlights from the team, including the good, the bad, and of course the weird. I mean, it is Vegas. Before we dive in, here's a quick word from our sponsor. If you truly want to grow your e-commerce business, it will only happen in one way, by building real quality customer relationships. Most marketing software promises this, but never really delivers. Clavio, on the other hand, is different. Clavio helps you build meaningful customer relationships by listening to and understanding cues from your customers, allowing you to turn that information into valuable marketing messages. That's why 10,000 plus innovative brands have switched to Clavio. All right, let's dive in. Hello from Las Vegas. It's Wednesday morning on March 6th, the last day of the Shop Talk Retail Show, and I am here with most of the Retail Dive team. Hey guys. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Um, this is Kara. I'm an editor on the publication. This is Daphne. I'm a reporter. And this is Liza. I'm the managing editor. And as always, I'm Corinne, your host of Conversational Commerce and a reporter on the publication. So Shop Talk, we came, we listened, we saw fire throwers. Shop Talk is in its fourth year now, and it's starting to attract some pretty big names. We saw, you know, Lowe's CEO Marvin Ellison, Art Pex Gap, Eric Nordstrom, and there's a lot to talk about. The theme for the year was create the future of retail, and that's incredibly vague, but that's also what everyone really is talking about in their own kind of way and differentiating, right? And what that means to a direct-to-consumer company is much different from a specialty apparel retailer or a department store. But a lot of things stood out to me at this show, and I think there's a lot of different kind of buckets that we can get into. Starting with data, I think data is something that people talk about a lot at these kinds of conferences, but some, some brands and retailers are really doing interesting things with data these days. Kara, you went to a couple of panels that tackled this question. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, I mean, it came up a lot. There were at least three different panels that I went to where data sort of was, was one of the central topics that they discussed. Um, but a couple just examples, Madison Reed, a uh, hair color company, was talking a lot about how data impacts um, both like they have a subscription service. So if I want to order something from the Madison Reed website, I can take a quiz and find out the exact hair color that I should buy. And that sort of eases the process on that end. And then also they have color bars where you can do an in-store hair color service. And even for that, they have customers take this quiz and sort of like collect the data on that to, to ease the service there. And then um, in a similar space, Glam Squad, which does sort of hair services, nail services, that kind of thing. Glam Squad is also really reliant on data and they gather it interestingly from multiple sort of sources. So the customer themselves will fill out surveys about how a given service went. And then their beauty professionals who are, are doing the service will also fill out data for the company based on like how a customer's hair was and like what products they might need. And um, so, so there's, there's, they're gathering a lot of data on that front as well. So it really sort of helps them figure out which products will serve a customer best. And if a different 
associate is helping the customer the next time they have all that information. Yeah, and that's something that has, I think, always tried to be the the clear competitive advantage for a company like Stitch Fix. And they were also here talking about that. I mean, they collected a lot of data with their quiz initially to get you to sign up, but then also, more importantly maybe, when you return things, why did you return that thing? Why did it not fit correctly? And so Chris Phillips, who's the GM of Stitch Fix Men's Kids and Exclusive Brands, spoke, and it was interesting because he talked about that problem. He talked about how like about 40% of their XL clients identify themselves as husky and were noticing that these shirts just weren't long enough for them. And they were telling the company that. And so since they you know, put that into the product innovation, changed the measurements, they saw the success rate of that product go up by 40%. Um, and that's great for Stitch Fix. That's also great for their brand partners because they're sharing that data with other brands and they can also change their product. Yeah, it was interesting. I actually also heard um, someone from Stitch Fix talk and they were talking a little more about they have a style shuffle game. And I think it was 75% of their customers have played this style shuffle game and it helps them sort of better identify what uh, what style a person likes or doesn't like because that's kind of one of the harder things for them to figure out. They can get, like you said, accurate data on sort of like sizing, but getting a feel for people's style is a little harder for them. But another thing that that you mentioned on feedback and sort of improving products, I spoke with um, Native's CEO, Moise Ali, and he was talking about they've received feedback and sort of used it to iterate on products and multiple of their products. So the deodorant that they originally launched with, they had over 100 versions of, he said so far. And with newer products, they have body wash and toothpaste and some other things. And he says uh, customer feedback has been a really integral part of improving on those. So the body wash, just as an example, uh, they were getting a lot of feedback that customers were having a hard time squeezing it. So then they changed the way that the bottle was shaped. And that's um, that's definitely impacted them a lot. And there were a couple other places, Alf Cosmetics was talking about getting data from products that maybe didn't do so well with some customer bases and using that to improve and create a new product that would serve that customer base better. And then also Lively, they talked a little bit interestingly about using customer feedback to create a future product line. So it was, okay, essentially the idea was our customers are going to tell us what our future products are. So like maybe right now we're only doing bras and undies, but if we get enough feedback from customers that they want something else, we're going to go there as well. Uh, one thing I think is interesting in all the examples you were talking about, right, is they're taking data and they're doing something very specific with it. I heard several panelists across the last few days talking about a couple of years ago they were talking about data scarcity, that they didn't have enough information, and now they're drowning in data points because they're getting data from in-store, they're getting data from the site, they're getting data from social media, they're getting data from interacting in, in many, many different ways. So a lot of it's about that interpretation piece. So some of them we're talking about, I think, you know, AI and machine learning, there's a tipping point for some of that and helping them figure out what to do with all this information and interpret it and actually act on it. Um, so it's just very interesting to watch this sort of transition point where data is filtering into everything that they're doing but they've got to figure out what to do with that. And there's still a human decision point, I think, in that process, right? They're setting a goal of what they want and then using that data input in smart ways, but a little overwhelming <laughs> sometimes. Data is also showing up in search and sort of a rapid refinement of search. Um, Google, we're all used to the way Google can finish the, the search that we've begun. Google already seems to know what we're after. 
and retailers are working really hard to make sure that they can complete your thought when you're you go shopping online at their sites. Um, American Eagle Outfitters is trying to do this for on mobile so that images can help further that for customers, whether they're online or actually in a store. Um, and Macy's is also bringing it in store by breaking down search, realizing that beauty customers are not really so loyal to individual brands anymore. So their new partnership with, with Perch means that you can search for fragrance, for example, using notes like floral or citrus rather than for, br for you know, by brand. The other interesting thing about search, though, is that retailers seem to be still struggling with how to promote discovery. And it's not clear that this machine learning enabled refinement of search is really strong in that regard. Pinterest is tackling this by actually looking at the store and the potential of the store to promote discovery of taste-based style is a word that they like to use. So it's interesting to see that even as search is being refined by data, that the old-fashioned store remains an example of a potentially ideal for discovery. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point. I think we talk about this a lot when we think about e-commerce and the trouble there with making e-commerce a place that you do want to go to discover new products. And I think right now we're still seeing the competitive advantage definitely being in the store, and that's what you know mass merchandisers like Target and Walmart are trying to do in competing with Amazon. I think Amazon is kind of the elephant in the room that no one's even talking about. <laughs> um, so Amazon was at the show. It didn't really appear like it was a big point of conversation though. They were here, right? So there were at least, what, three or four sessions maybe, I think, that had Amazon execs. Um, and we actually heard, so one of the keynotes was from one of the evangelists for the Alexa services, right? Uh, and in the introduction for when he was speaking, the woman who was interviewing him in this fireside chat sort of noted that there's a very limited number of Amazon executives that are, are allowed to publicly speak about some of these things, um, which I thought was sort of interesting. But they were here. The session wasn't particularly well attended. It's starting to look a little bit to me like we've sort of acknowledged as an industry that Amazon owns particular plays, right? They own convenience. They certainly have a lot of data through all of their many sort of operating arms, but people were pivoting to talk about other things. They were talking about differentiation, they were talking about customer experience, they were talking about the store, and I don't think anyone doesn't know that Amazon exists, right? But it's become less of the obsessive point that people are talking about maybe ad nauseum. Yeah, and I, I also s I saw that as well in the fact that the majority of the panels that I went to, the conversation was not about Amazon, the conversation was about, okay, um, how do we offer a differentiated experience? Like, how do we make sure our branding makes customers really want to come to us and, and creates a strong connection with customers? So it's almost like talking about Amazon and e-commerce without really mentioning Amazon and e-commerce. They're more talking about the solutions that they're using to avoid becoming just another brand that's selling online. That's a good point. Um, also, I did hear it come Amazon's name get mentioned when we're talking about channels. Amazon is just another channel to sell on, right? And I think a lot of brands are running into this where you can sell up to a certain point, but then you know you you need to hit critical mass. You need to be where your customer is, which is another kind of tired point that people are making that that is still relevant. But one of the things that um, 
I heard was from Nicole Quinn. She's a partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. And she said her philosophy has always been Amazon is not your friend. Stay away from them. Stay out of their site. And the example she gave was Stitch Fix, right? Like they tried to stay away. And then Amazon sort of had this copycat boxed service apparel styling service thing that they've done now. But now, I mean, that's it's harder to avoid. And I think she's saying that there's emerging examples of where Amazon does need to partner with people in categories that it doesn't really have figured out yet. And it can be good if, you know, you follow her advice and say no to your first deal and sort of try to compromise and and work on something that's not only good for Amazon, but also good for brands. There's another um, sort of retail behemoth that is getting easier to avoid, however, and that's malls. Art Peck, when he talked about Gap, which is recently being separated out from Old Navy, along with a a bunch of the Gap Inc.'s smaller brands, Peck was very surprisingly adamant about how malls just aren't serving Gap customers anymore. The rents are too high and traffic is falling, so it's just not worth it. Gap is going to be closing 230 stores, which is a lot. Um, When they do open new stores, as they did in Encinitas, California recently, It's not going to be in malls. It's going to be in places as in Encinitas, which is next to a Trader Joe's. Not as much traffic, a lot more sales, according to Peck, and so worth it. Yeah, but that's a big change for Gap, right? I mean, to exit the mall, to kind of go back to to strip malls or other locations. I mean, the bigger change for Gap is probably the fact that they're losing 230 stores, mostly in the U.S., but to the extent that it will survive, it's not going to be thanks to the mall. Yeah. For sure. One of the other things that we were kind of talking about and like what were the big takeaways from the show and I think just this year in the conferences we've been to so far is this big evolution of the legacy brands trying to figure out where do they need to be and we we definitely saw a lot of conversation especially with department stores. So department stores are struggling. They too are tied to malls um, after you know their heyday I guess in the late 19th century when they were downtown and wowing everyone um, who spent a day in the city they are macy's has been abandoning malls you hear from hudson's bay company's Saks, which is spending a lot of time and energy on their flagship in new york city so they have some work to do getting their stores back which remain their core advantage to a place where people really want to engage as sort of just a an interesting point in relation to that a lot of the companies that I saw were sort of direct-to-consumer, online-first brands. And for them, they're still talking about getting into brick-and-mortar. That's a channel that they recognize that they need, but it's a very different kind of approach than what department stores are doing, right? So they're not they're not focusing as much on being in malls necessarily, but like Madison Reed, for example, opened a few color bars in um, New York and California, I believe. And those for for that CEO Amy Erich, she said it's really made the brand more real to customers. So even if it's not within that department store setting, it's necessary for some of these smaller online brands to create that physical presence and create a connection with customers on that level. And it also increases sales digitally for them. So that's kind of an interesting relationship with what, what's happening with department stores versus what's happening with these online brands. Yeah, and, and I mean, there's so much connection back and forth with how the digital brands are influencing the legacy players too. Um, and that's been a part of the Macy's story since they acquired Story and also hired on Rachel Sheckman. And she spoke and 
didn't tell us what Story 2.0 is going to be, unfortunately, um, but she did talk about a really interesting lab that they created near Herald Square. They put it together in nine days to sort of figure out how to, I think the initial question was about dynamic pricing, but also I think the, the, uh, the larger exercise was getting together a lot of executives who had ne never worked together before in trying to figure out how can we test and play and learn even though we have all of these big stores and legacies. Yeah, and that's a mindset that comes easier, I think, to some of those smaller companies that are built more on innovation. It's interesting, though. There's still tension around the digital native brands. I think we were talking about this last night. You know, the some of the larger players have expressed varying levels of skepticism about the business model altogether, right? Whether they're actually building sustainable brands for the long term. They have this very steep trajectory. I think, Daphne, you pointed this out the other day. They have a steep trajectory. And then, you know, what happens if they've saturated the market? How do they expand beyond that? And the CEO of Tapestry spoke in a keynote. And he's sort of, right, they're a company that holds a lot of iconic brands. They see themselves as a brand-focused company. They talk about how they're a storytelling company. That's what, you know, brands are made up of is stories. And he very politely expressed some skepticism about sort of whether some of the digital native brands are brands in the sense that he thinks of them. Uh, and it was a direct response to a question about whether they would consider buying any of those. That's a fair point. Eric Nordstrom also got asked that question and he said, no, that's not our business model. We want to be a great brand partner. But it's a really interesting point that there's different perspectives on. I was at a lot of panels with VC firms and from their perspective, I think, you know, they've flooded money into the segment, but they're starting to pull back and let it be a little bit more cautious of, okay, all of these new direct-to-consumer digitally native brands are probably not going to be billion-dollar companies. Not to say they don't have a place in retail, but, you know, they might be small, there might be more smaller brands in that area. But for the companies that do survive, how did they do that? I think one example that we saw was Dollar Shave Club. And so Michael Dubin spoke, and a lot of what he had to say focused on building a lifestyle brand, expanding product categories, but also serving this bigger community feel that people are talking about, you know, having an editorial magazine product that sort of hits at a larger mission of catering to men's grooming and sort of filling that greater need. And community is definitely, I mean, that's definitely something that came up for a lot of these uh, brands that I saw speak. Um, this is sort of shifting into more of a branding conversation, but Cotopaxi is this outdoor gear brand. And one of the things that they were talking about was marketing efforts. And so they have this event called Questival, and they have a series of them across the country. And they're focused like centrally on creating a community for really loyal uh, customers who are really interested in their message and so it's a totally different kind of marketing like it's not based on promos and discounts and there's nothing of that kind but it really for them they think it's a winning strategy in the sense that the people who are there feel really strongly about the brand and really enjoy the sort of activities that they've lined up at this Questival event. And they're all sort of outdoor focused. And so it's this very different approach to, to getting customers to come back. That is a very much a part of the DNA of some of these small, smaller or startup digital native companies. I talked to the founder of Shopo yesterday and she was talking about that a lot, right? That they're embodying their customers community, essentially, right? The founder is very similar to their customer base, so she understands them in a different way. But what's interesting to me, and this also comes back to the department stores again, right? They, How many of them called out social influencers that they were trying to build internally, right? So there's this pivot 
it's very much a reaction, I would think, to these social media, these sort of successful brand efforts on the part of some of the newer companies that the department stores are realizing, hey, maybe we ought to try and sort of do some of this. Yeah, and I think to that point, some of it comes back to engagement with the employee and thinking about store associates in a much different way and like their role is so much different than it used to be. And that was something that the CMO of Lowe's talked about and she said, you know, the 30,000 store associates I have are more powerful than any marketing campaign I can do. And they're starting to feature those employees in their actual marketing campaigns. And so it's just an interesting question of in this era when we've got social influencers, to what extent is the store associate role changing to to fill that as well I mean arguably arguably the store associate role is the return to the old-fashioned level of customer service that used to be able to find in stores what's interesting is as department stores and even mass merchants like Target turn to their store associates and make sure everyone's there on the floor helping and being part of essentially a brand ambassador is how much slower We, we talk so much about machine learning and data and how swiftly products can be iterated as feedback comes in. Changing a store, remodeling a store, training associates all takes a lot more time. So even as Macy's and Target and other places take these steps to get back to that good old customer service, it remains to be seen if if they can do it as quickly as they need to. It's interesting as well when you talk about having store associates become ambassadors and there's a lot of buzz as well about having your customers be your brand ambassadors and like, you know, user generated content is really powerful. And back to the to the Cotopaxi example, something that I thought was really interesting there is they ran into issues where essentially they tried to encourage the social sharing that was already happening naturally. And they received like a ton of blowback from customers who were like, we don't want to be told when to share. Like, we don't want to have to feel like we're forced to share the brand. So there's a really fine line as well on that front where, like, if you're noticing all of this organic, great sharing for your brand, how do you encourage that without coming across as, like, gimmicky or trying to force them into sharing? So, And I think authenticity is such a big question around that because customers are smart like they're going to realize whether something is just for a gimmick just for more sales whether they're being used and I think now today's customers they have a lot of options they don't they don't need you if you know they feel like you were just using their comment to benefit their business it's not a real authentic relationship well and it's interesting I was talking to a small e-commerce player um, and they had pushed their in they have stylists in store because they're sort of a high-end luxury focused retailer um, and they have some limited locations, right? So they've got, I can't remember the exact number, but say a handful of stores. And they were talking to their stylists about going online and engaging with customers, and they were very resistant initially because it felt inorganic to them or inauthentic. So they had to sort of sit down and talk through that it's a channel blurring of how you reach your customer, which is another theme we heard a lot about, right, is that customers don't actually think about a channel when they're shopping. They just want you to give them what they want, when they want it, right. how they want it. <laughs> and they don't actually think, oh, today I'm going to go shop for an e-commerce company. And Let me change I'm my channel and, and pull up my mobile phone. Exactly. That's not how the consumer thinks about it. And it's starting to be not really how brands or retailers think about it either in terms of 
let's stop sort of siloing some of these things, even when you're talking about the marketing and the in-store experience or the shopping experience maybe is a better term when you're not talking about channels. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting, that there's resistance that they do meet, and it does have to feel authentic. But if you put your customer first, you eventually sort of get there, I think. Yeah, customer centricity seems to be like a very, very big message. And to your point, Daphne, like how fast companies move there is remains to be seen. And the ways in which they do that is going to be different for direct consumer brands like you're saying, Kara, or, you know, the Macy's and the Nordstrom's of the world. So to kind of wrap up our conversation, I wanted to do something fun. We're in Vegas, which is kind of a weird place to be for a conference, although there are a lot of conferences here. But what was the most unexpected or bizarre thing that you saw? I mean, my personal favorite is the choice of entertainment for <laughs> everything. So like before all the keynotes, there's like a flamethrower and there was a percussionist group and some tap dancers and so there was just a lot of this kind of bizarre um, entertainment going on before very serious conversations among retailers and I mean you know part of that is a lot of these retail conferences have DJs and that that I've sort of come to expect but the entertainment aspect was totally new to me and you also had you know Shaggy had a concert which is just <laughs> sort of a bizarre juxtaposition when you consider all of the conversations that people feel very strongly about. <laughs> I think my favorite had to be um, Brookfield Properties stamp on the sky in the faux um, St. Mark's Place Palazzo. Um, you know maybe if malls are going to disappear from the from the ground they could head to the clouds. I come to Vegas prepared for some of the sort of ridiculous juxtaposition when you're at a conference of walking through the casino after, you know, serious conversations around what an industry's future is. But I have to say one of the things that was, I don't know if it's a fun thing, it's just sort of an odd thing, is that the view from my hotel room is over the mall that's on the Strip. So I can, I'm looking at the names of a lot of the retailers who were speaking in the evenings back in my room and they're talking during the day. And we talked a little bit about, right, there is a, there's a retail component to a lot of the casinos in Vegas. I think Daphne, you pointed out there was nobody shopping in them, which, okay, it's a conference. Maybe that's not their destination, but it certainly isn't a great representation of the industry that we're serving, that there's no one really consuming. Yeah, that's a, that's a little sad. I, I think I found the most bizarre place to conduct an interview. Um, there's actually a bar that's right in the middle of the casino floor. And so I'm like sitting at this weird bar where like right in front of you are all of these games and all these like beeping behind you and, um, you know, cigar smoke everywhere and every, it's like 2 p.m. but everyone's like drinking gin and tonic. So yeah, maybe a word of caution for next year of where to plan meetings. <laughs> but yeah, I think overall just a really interesting show that kind of touches on a lot of the things that we have outlined as storylines and narratives that we're covering for the whole year and definitely things that we will continue to, to be covering. Thank you guys. Thanks. Thanks, Corinne. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conversational Commerce. For all the latest news and trends, subscribe to our free daily newsletter at retaildive.com. Plus, if you like this show, give us a rating or leave us a review on iTunes. And stay tuned for more episodes. For now, I'm Corinne Ruff, and this was Conversational Commerce.